Hello, this is Pierce Boyne, the Digital Media Editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, or JNPT. This podcast episode is part of a series where Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate these findings to clinical practice. In this episode, the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group is interviewing Dr. Alyssa Held Bradford about the special interest article in the April 2022 issue of JNPT that is titled Health Promotion and Wellness in Neurologic Physical Therapy, Strategies to Advance Practice. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's excited to listen in and learn more about this important topic. Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Alyssa Held Bradford. Alyssa is a assistant professor of physical therapy and athletic training at St. Louis University. And we have Alyssa here today to talk about her uh, new paper that is published with a task force called Health Promotion and Wellness in Neurologic Physical Therapy Strategies to Advance Practice. So welcome, Melissa, and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Well, thank you so much for inviting me here to talk. I'm excited to be here. So again, my name is Alyssa Helbrafford, and I am a physical therapist. I'm assistant professor at St. Louis University, where I teach full-time. I'm still engaged actively in clinical practice through our ALS clinic. Um, And we also have a pro bono clinic with students. So we um, just came from seeing some clients today through our pro bono clinic. That's great. Yeah. All right. So what we're talking about here is health promotion and wellness. So what does that really mean? So, you know, it means different things to different people, right? So, I mean, for us, what we felt and ultimately landed on for a physical therapist, a big piece of what resonates with health promotion and wellness is the physical activity piece of it, right? That um, right. overall lifestyle, physical activity, structured exercise, and also that third component of, of reducing sedentaryism. So when we think about health promotion and wellness, we really look at it as that kind of is our biggest tool or our lens that we're often trying to use to help advance outcomes in our clients, improve their overall uh, fitness and quality of life. Mm-hmm. But I have been involved in the larger APGA's a council on prevention, health promotion, and wellness. And I believe you guys have had a podcast and talked to Paul and some other people about that. Yep. And so from, from that work, you know, we recognize that there's other really important healthy aspects of health promotion and wellness, like sleep, right. And nutrition and stress management and smoking sensation. And so we felt it was important and we tried to do our due diligence to looking for the evidence to be like, all right, are these healthy other habits, an important part of our scope in PT? And if so, in what way, and what resources do we need to know to not only do our kind of main tool of physical activity well, but also making sure that we know how to counsel and screen for some of these other important healthy habits. All right. So the paper really focuses on those five, right? That you just mentioned, physical mm-hmm. activity, sleep, stress, nutrition, and smoking. So that is what you're recommending 
physical therapists gain some comfort with in counseling their patients on. Yes. Okay, so we w- we're here to talk about this paper, which is the culmination summary of some task force work. So tell us a little bit about the task force, what it is and how it came to be. Yes. So I was lucky enough to be involved with a great group of individuals that came together back in 2016 through the Academy of NeuroPT. We, we volunteered and were <laughs> selected to help us understand the landscape of HPW or health promotion and wellness in neuro and what kind of directions that we needed to go to really advance practice. We had heard that the reason the task force was formed where members were asking more about HPW and neuro and wanting more resources and direction. So that's kind of the the impetus of what drove the formation of the task force. Mm -hmm. It was myself. I was co-chair with Miriam Rafferty, who's the lead author on the paper that you're referencing that we're talking about tonight. Um, Stacey Fitz, Karen Hutchison, Kimberly um, Miskak, Ariel Resnick, and Sandra Billinger were also on the task force with us. So it was very much a group effort. Mm -hmm. Great. And so what did you guys start with? You know, I think that identifying what physical therapists should do and can do is kind of important. Is that where you started or? No, I think that's pretty, pretty spot on farm. Um, we, you know, we were given one sheet of paper from the Academy of like, Hey, here are some draft ideas go. And so we reviewed that and we did some internal dialogue and discussion and really did a lot of brainstorming and and talking to peers about, okay, this is a nice kind of frame and start, but really what is the landscape? Um, What are the needs? What do we want to achieve as a task force? What were kind of our strategic targets? And that took a little bit of time to really land on where we wanted to be. But ultimately, through discussion and looking at the literature and talking to others, we really felt like there were some significant barriers that were presenting to practice and that we ultimately landed on kind of four different strategies to try to address those barriers. And that really is what ended up resulting in the accumulation of the paper, as well as different resources that we developed through the task force, like the course on Synapse that we did. Mm -hmm. So what are the barriers to people implementing those conversations and, you know, interventions or referrals. Right. So I think the barriers that we discovered, um, one was just lack of knowledge. So not everyone is aware of some of the literature that's been going on. So we have Elizabeth Dean's great work that has been done about this area of practice. Janet Besner wrote a paper that was published in PTJ that really outlines these five behaviors. So part of it was getting that information disseminated. And again, making sure we look at it through the lens of neurospecific practice as well, because those two individuals, Elizabeth Dean and Janet Besner, were really looking at those things for all of PT. And we really wanted to make sure that, yeah, this does resonate work for our population. So that was one barrier was um, just maybe a lack of awareness of what we, of what the ask was. Right. Uh, Time is always a barrier. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So how do we, how do we manage all these things that we're trying to do in our, in our day and get that done? Um, Another one was really the self-efficacy, like, okay, so you're Maybe I kind of, I understand now that I should maybe ask about sleep, but how do I ask about sleep and when, and and how do I connect people? So really building confidence, that self-efficacy about addressing some of those other behaviors, if maybe an individual didn't feel comfortable. Yeah. And having those referral sources, I think is so key, right? Because it's, it's 
kind of awful to ask somebody about something and they say it's a problem and then you're, you can't, they're like, oh, well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, don't open a door if you're not willing to walk through it with somebody on that journey. So right. we ended up ultimately one of our tools was asking the Academy of NeuroPT to let us have an HPW, a health promotion wellness page. And in that we have a section on resources. And so there's lots of good resources out there and we wanted to give people at least a starting point. So we have resources on our page for good information on sleep, on healthy eating, and just giving people a starting point for that conversation and resources to go to. And we share some of that in the paper as well. So it's kind of in two places for people to access. Yeah. Well, the paper is actually chock full of, uh, where to go to find the resources, the synapse course that's out there is mentioned in the paper. So certainly as people are listening to this and they're, they're looking for kind of what's the next step. I think if you just go to the paper, it really helps to figure out that next step and gives you a variety of different things you could do. So you can find, you know, hopefully find the thing that kind of fits for you. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about clinical settings, because I'm going to be completely honest. When I looked at the title of this, I was like, oh, this is for outpatient therapists. (laughs) And then then I started reading it and I'm like, "Uh, no, this is also for inpatient therapists. And then when I really started reflecting and thinking about it, um, I work in acute care and I talk to people about smoking because we have a smoking cessation program. And so sometimes I'll ask them, are they interested in quitting? And sometimes no one's asked them that question yet by the time I get in there and they might say yes. And I'll, I often will ask on a scale, you know, how interested they are. And then I can get a referral to the smoking cessation program. So I feel comfortable doing that. So I was like, Hey, wait, I'm kind of doing some of this. So that was exciting. You're doing it you're doing it beautifully. So you just, oh my God, you just packaged so many wonderful things there, your self-efficacy on that aspect of just being comfortable asking the question, gauging their interest, right? Using some of those behavior change mm-hmm. and motivational interviewing language, right? To really get them to get that buy-in and then, and then being able to follow up with a great resource. That was well done. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. But it took, it took a long time to develop the comfort and the skills of doing that, you know, over and over and over again, mm-hmm. practice. So as I was reading the paper, I was realizing, oh, some of this stuff is happening even in acute care. Right. But could you talk a little bit about that continuum of care and how you see it translating through? Yes. So, you know, I, right now, my main practice for many years has been an outpatient as well. And so sometimes we kind of, you know, we jump in our lane that we feel comfortable with, but I started practice in acute care. And as we, as we developed um, the paper and, and looking at what we felt people needed, we felt very strongly that it is appropriate. People like yourself are already doing it and we need to do more. And so one of the pieces we did of our strategies was promoting delivery models. So really some of the practicalities of like, how would this look like in my practice and what settings? And so one of them that I think best fits what we're talking about now is that model of acute to outpatient continuum. And what it's speaking to is what you've already kind of alluded to is early on from the beginning, 
we need to be talking about healthy habits Mm -hmm. and health promotion and wellness on that kind of holistic lens. And and the more we can start that conversation early and planting that seed that we're here to not only help you recover and restore function, but we're thinking about you beyond this one piece. We're thinking about you as a whole person. We're thinking about how these other components are layering into your health and your success, right? We know there's Mm -hmm. evidence I work a lot with people with MS and we know there's good evidence that if you're smoking, that that is, has potential negative impacts on your course of disease with MS. And right. And, um, so, and we know if we don't eat well, nutrition wise, we don't have the energy to do our day. We don't have the energy to exercise. So I think how we pull in these, um, healthy habits and these, this area of HPW really can enhance what we think of our main wheelhouse in PT, as well as enhancing quality of care and lives for the clients that we serve. Right. So, yes. Yeah. I I just want to circle back real quick to the MS and smoking piece, because Mm -hmm. that was something mentioned in the paper that I didn't kind of realize the numbers behind. I mean, you know, smoking is not good for anybody, right? So we're going to, counsel people to stop if they can, but can you talk a little bit about sort of how negative it is for people with MS? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad you bring it up. You know, it's something we know that smoking is not good for any of us on our health. We think of lung cancer and all these other components, but one of the pieces that when we were doing our, our scan of the literature was recognizing that some of these factors can um, hopefully help address primary prevention. And this is an example of that because according to um, the paper with Thugman published in 2017, um, they found that smoking had a statistically significant association with an increased risk for developing MS as well as progressing to secondary progressive MS. And they saw that risk was up to 50%. So that's really significant for our, for our clients with MS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially that you know, we're often seeing people who have already developed MS, but knowing that if they're smoking, that really increases the risk of progressing to secondary progressive, you know, might make somebody really want to intervene, figure out how am I going to intervene and what kind of resources can I get for this client because of this risk is so high. Right. And there's so many other things we're already doing to try to help, you know, stay and relax, remitting and prevent progression. And that could be a very powerful tool for them, not only helping their MS, but helping in other areas as well. Absolutely. Right. For sure. All right. So we were talking about the continuum of care. And um, do you have any suggestions for communication? Because That's one of the things that's tricky for a lot of our patients as they progress from, you know, an acute care setting to inpatient rehab to home health to outpatient. I mean, that's four distinct settings. And how Mm -hmm. do we help to all be giving the same message in those four settings? Any ideas? That is a great question. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the best case scenario is you're all within one system where you can go back and see what has been documented and done. Those warm handoffs, if you have those relationships, when people are transferring from one continuum to a next, it's always great when you can 
again, reach out, have that conversation or that, that call. Um, but that doesn't always happen. So the more that we can be clear that we've been had that conversation. So then people can pick right off where we, where we started. I usually like to encourage the clients as well to bring it up. Like, Hey, I talked to my acute care therapist about this and they told me that you could continue to help. So empowering clients to be their own advocates and having them to initiate that conversation, I think can be a really, a really powerful tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of the handouts that people get, like, you know, the stroke booklet or the, those different kinds of things that you can then share, you know, I'll often say to people, share this with your home health therapist or your rehab therapist so that they know what information you have and have been given. Yes. I always tell people, yeah, bring all your homework and your handouts to your next person, right? So they can see where you're starting from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. All right. So um, that, you know, that was kind of one of the things that was talked about in the paper. There was also discussion about this regular PT annual PT visit or more of a dental model. And um, I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about that and, you know, the reasons for recommending that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's been a a really good momentum gained about about the dental model. I didn't come from me, (laughs) Um, just building off the great work of others. And Mm -hmm. in that term, of course, is building up. Everyone goes to dentists every six months, right? So it's thinking about everyone come to see PT every six months or a year for a checkup. And the council, the APTA Health Promotion and Wellness Council has really embraced that. And they've actually worked really hard to develop what, what might an annual PT checkup look like and be the components. And there's resources um, on their website. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the larger lane of where it's coming from. And I think for neuro, I think it's huge and so important for that. We think about how can we continue to check in with people and empower them to stay active, build those healthy habits when they need us. So sometimes people, they don't need us every day, every week, but they need to know that we're here and -hmm. that there's value of checking in um, and catching things when there are small problems before they become big problems. Because most people are really good at like, oh yeah, I had a fall or a really big change in function. I need to ask my doctor to go back and see PT. And sometimes that's just a little too late. We again, want to be proactive in our care and get in there earlier to help people again, stay active and do the things that are important to them. And those either six month or annual checks up are a big piece of that. Yeah. And it kind of makes me think about the distinction between primary, secondary, and tertiary care. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that too, and how that fits in to this. There's a a lot of debate about what is really primary prevention in neuro, right? Like to me, the hardcore answer of primary prevention is preventing a neuro condition from happening. So it's fall prevention to stop a TBI, right? Like that's a very clear example of it. Um, and other aspects, if you already have the neurological condition, then you're really in secondary or tertiary, right. Or you're preventing primary for those other non-communicational diseases, like the diabetes, right. The cardiovascular exercise to like prevent or prevent another stroke, you know, or prevent another stroke. Yeah, exactly. Like those are, I think are the the clearest um, examples that fit best for primary prevention. Yeah. I mean, I think of it too, as like, you know, if you're setting somebody up with a cardiovascular exercise program, right? You want to be checking in with them to make sure that they're able to keep up with it. And is it really working? And if it's, and and that is truly primary, right? Completely preventative. Um, And then when you start 
to see some of the, some problems, like a little balance problem because you do a balance test. And then, then you're kind of getting more into a secondary model of treating a problem that has arisen. Yes, exactly. Again, we're still getting in there early, early on and, and catching those challenges before they become really significant. Yeah, totally. So we have talked so far about sort of that continuum of care. We just talked about the dental model. What is the skilled maintenance model? How does that sort of work in this, in this arena? Right. So skilled maintenance, uh, we're really trying to break through this negative connotation. Sometimes when we say maintenance, people kind of step back and get a little bit hesitant because they're like, oh my gosh, I can't do maintenance. That's not skilled therapy. So to be clear, we're talking about skilled physical therapy intervention. We know from the Jimbo Sabalas case that Medicare will cover skilled PT that's delivered to maintain Mm -hmm. function um, and to prevent loss of function. And that's really the heart of this model is that we we know that some individuals, particularly individuals that have more progressive disease, I also work a lot Mm -hmm. with individuals with ALS, right? So a lot of my goals are to try to help maintain their function for as long as possible. Um, I might see maybe some short-term gains early on, but a lot I'm trying to do is slow that curve and that regression piece. And I have a lot of consultations with home care therapists when I refer out for a skilled maintenance is helping them understand like, Hey, I know that they're maybe not going to improve their walking, Mm -hmm. but they need your guidance as actually as to help maintain their walking for as long as possible. And to be there when walking is not safe and to have that skilled reasoning to help them see what's the next level to compensate with. Right. And so often using your clinical reasoning, your skilled care in some cases, not to advance a program, but to regress a program right. And to add more compensatory strategy. So that's one way in which the skilled um, maintenance model can be very appropriate for some clients. Right. Yeah. And also, you know, to, to bring in that kind of health promotion and wellness aspect is having that maintenance, that regular, somebody checking on you in a home health situation, you can make sure people are moving, you know, you can, or refer to a nutritionist if they're interested in it. And it seems like it would be beneficial to them. So it seems like a way to sort of continue to help promote health and kind of keep people, you know, on that good path. No, absolutely. And I'm glad you said that. Cause when you, when I spoke to it, I was really speaking more to kind of just the the logistics of how the model works. And, And to your point, the heart of the piece is that that skilled maintenance, you get that relationship with individuals at the home health example. There's just so much that comes up when you're in someone's home, right? That you can see all these different aspects that maybe they weren't shared with you when they were in acute care. Cause there were too many things going on right. or, um, you know, an outpatient, you don't, you don't, you don't see the, the, the Doritos bag laying out and it opens times for different conversations and it's very salient and real to them. It can really help build that rapport and therapeutic alliance and really can help with those healthy habits that we're talking about through HBW. Yeah, right, right. And then the last model that you bring forth in the paper is this health promotion and wellness center. Um, So could you talk a little bit about what is meant by that and how it was sort of conceptualized and visualized by the group? Yeah, so this was inspired by some really great 
uh, leaders that are doing these sort of HPW center models across the country. I think of like Craig Hospital, I think here in St. Louis at Paraquad, um, where they're really specialized centers that have really good universal design, adaptive equipment for exercise and fitness. They have um, individuals either that are specialty trained fitness providers or even licensed PTs or OTs perhaps that can kind of bring in that expertise and they get the HPW holistic approach, right? They get that they're here to help people support them and be active and exercise. And they also often bring in different services to, to talk about healthy habits for nutrition, sleep and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. our purpose of having this HPW clinic model was to tell people that there are resources out there like this, perhaps in your, in your neighborhood, yeah. check them out. They can be great handoffs again. So again, someone may be finishing an outpatient course of care. They've worked through that lovely continuum in acute care and their therapist talked about HPW. And now maybe they're like, okay, we're feeling good, but I still need some resources, but it's really not skilled PT at this time, but I need the right equipment to exercise, or I need that, that person that really kind of gets my mobility challenges. And these centers really help bridge and fill that gap for us. Mm -hmm. So that's really kind of where it started. It's expanded a little bit to recognize that sometimes YMCAs can step up and do have certified, you know, trainers there as well, that you can kind of do a warm handoff um, and get them connected in the resources. So it doesn't always have to be the center that has all the bells and whistles. Um, It's really just taking the time to connect them to a community resource for them that has their unique needs. Yeah. To stay active and support HBW. Yeah. And I love that point because there are so many of us working in places that don't have the things that they have in, you know, the big cities or whatever. And so I think that even some places that have, you know, senior centers that might offer those kinds of, you know, cooking classes and things that you could just potentially hook someone up with, or at least give them resources. So if it's an area that they're interested in or, um, you know, need help in, they can get that. So yes, it takes a little time to find those resources, but once you have them, you can share them with the other PTs in your practice, in your area, and sort of help to, to promote health promotion and wellness. (laughs) Yes. And you bring up a good point. It does some take a little bit of investment sometimes, right. To, to find those resources and establish the connections, but you know, to me, that investment is so worth it because once you put that in, it just keeps giving, right? Because you can keep using that resources and you develop that relationship. And um, sometimes clients, they're, they're sending people back to you and to your clinic when they see needs arise. And mm-hmm. then you can have that reciprocal relationship and right. really create this continuum that we're not just in the strict medical model. There's so many great resources in our communities that where people, you know, live, work and play that we want to connect to. So. Yeah. So there's a couple other things I want to bring up as we're chatting. And one is one of the things that I really appreciated about the paper is the acknowledgement that as physical therapists, we're not experts in nutrition. We're not experts in sleep and we don't need to be, but, but the goal is to gain some comfort in having the conversations about those things And the paper, I think, gives some good ideas of kind of questions, outcome measures that we could be using to help assess that. So I want to really encourage people to go to the paper and look at the resources and look at what is recommended. And I'm curious, Alyssa, you said that you see people with ALS. This is the DD-SIG. So, you know, near and dear to our hearts. Yes. Has this work changed 
kind of how you interact with those patients and what you do with them? You know, for me, really this kind of awareness of, you know, I got to look beyond my narrow scope of exercise, right? That number one exercise is, is physical activity is more than just exercise. And I need to think about sedentaryism and lifestyle physical activity. And when I read Janet Besner's paper, I actually like, she had these kind of five things and I printed it and I put it on my clipboard. I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk to everybody and I'm going to start building this in part of my habits. Um, and you know, when I transitioned to doing more work with ALS, that just kind of carried forward. And in, in my work in ALS, what it has evolved to is I don't actually ask all the questions because I work in a comprehensive team with my neurologist and my speech language pathologist and a nutritionist that's right there. Mm-hmm. So, but we make sure that we are covering all these bases and we then have conversation at roundtable about how they interact together. Mm-hmm. So often for us, I end up finding myself talking a little bit more about the sleep and stress because our neurologist is the one that has kind of taken over our smoker smoking questions and someone else is, and, our, and our dietitian is talking about nutrition, but it's beautiful how it all comes together. And we all do our own piece um, to help clients. Some of our pieces is there is an ALS quality of life survey that we use, and it hits on some of these components of sleep and stress um, and intimacy. And that's really opened the door for clients to even raise forward questions to us, which has been really empowering too, when they're asking us, oh yeah, you know, you asked me this question and it made me reflect. I really am struggling in this area. I'd like to know more. What resources do you have? Right. Right. I think that that like, as we start to get more comfortable in understanding and implementing behavior change with our clients and can have those more difficult conversations, people open up quicker and you get a real sense, you know, they'll, they'll tell you the truth. Like they will, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I've had patients before that are like, I I just don't want to do this right now. And I'm like, okay, like, like, why are we wasting our time? If this is not the thing that you want to be doing. And, um, you know, and I think that they appreciate it too, because they feel like they can really be honest with you instead of feeling like they're disappointing you or they're disappointing their doctor or that referred them to you or whatever. So I think that really sort of assessing that readiness for change is a skill and a tricky skill, but an important one. Are there resources, specific resources that are recommended for that? Or is that addressed in any of um, the courses or resources mentioned in the paper? Right. So I think um, in our synapse course, we covered that most absolutely we had a module on behavior change. Um, and we also had a short kind of primer on motivational interviewing. So those would be two kind of go-to resources I would recommend people check out. It's embedded within the synapse course. We are actually um, getting ready to add to our HPW um, webpage, actually a section on kind of health coaching and be, and on motivational interviewing. So look for more to come yeah. because we are actively continuing to find like, what are some of those good resources that are already out there that we can tap into? We would love to give some little video examples. So we got a couple of things in the works, hopefully of like, Hey, here's, here's someone having a conversation. What, what really resonates with that, right? Change talk language where we, we talk less 
they talk more because mm-hmm. we, we listen. Um, and, and where are we still struggling? Cause it is an art and a skill. Mm-hmm. Um, often as PTs, I think we try to put on our fix it hats, right. Right. And we need to recognize we need to put more of our coaching hats on yeah. and really ask the questions and make sure we really get at the heart of it and really assess that readiness and engage our interventions based on that. Right. Like, I feel like we're always trying to meet people where they're at, but you have to know where they're at. Exactly. You don't. And then we spend a lot of time having this whole conversation that they're just, they're just not ready for. Yeah. Right. Or was the wrong conversation at the wrong time. So yes, for sure. Well, the paper is chock full of a lot of information. And so, you know, I think it's a great resource for clinicians and clinicians who work in any setting and really even any population, but here, we're uh, specifically talking about the neural population and degenerative diseases. And so I want to thank you so much for bringing this forward and chatting with us about it. I think our reader, our listeners will get a lot out of it. Um, we always, if you've ever listened to our podcast, you know that we always ask what you like to do when you're not working or volunteering to be on a task force. So Alyssa, what do you do in your spare time? Yes. Well, I'll answer that question, but I want to make one quick plug if I may. Yeah, please. All right. So Miriam Rafferty and Meredith Robert Lowe and I presented at CSM and we built off this paper to come up with a clinical decision tree. So I want to give a little teaser to everybody that we're trying to work and we've already kind of got a draft going that we presented and we're getting feedback to truly help people kind of figure out what model is most appropriate for their client and how do you kind of work through the model. So look for more to come, hopefully on a resource on a clinical decision tree for the models that we kind of present in the paper. Okay, so. cool. So, and that will, you think that will, will be on, on the website? Um, at minimum, we're going to get it on the website. We're hoping to see if we can get disseminated a little bit broader um, mm-hmm. in a quick publication, like a brief report, but at minimum, we'll get a version up on the website. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Yep. Awesome. So what I like to do in my spare time, I love to paddle. So I love to kayak um, and be outdoors. So anytime I can be on the water in, our, in a canoe or a kayak is my top choice. My second choice is to be on my feet on the trail. We're going to do some backpacking for my daughter's uh, birthday this weekend. So a short hike. So those are some of my two favorite things to do. So fun. Okay. So where do you like to paddle? Um, I like, I like to paddle rivers primarily. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got, I live in Missouri and we've got a lot of rivers. Um, We actually got a national um, riverway here with the current and the Jack Forth river. And they are just fabulous, fabulous. So not like hardcore whitewater rafting. I'm not, I'm not that good, Yeah. (laughs) Um, but a little bit of whitewater on a, on a good river is my favorite. Yeah. That sounds fun. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great time and a lot of good information. Absolutely. I'm honored to be here. And thank you for promoting the paper and spending the time. I feel really the DG SIG has been amazing about just getting the word out for HPW. You guys have done such a great work. We really appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Christina Burke, Casey Burris, and special thanks to Ken Benaco. I'm Parm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, 
or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jamie McKay for providing music. The only other thing to know is that, um, like, there's usually bloopers. A blip. (laughs) (laughs) There's another blooper. Don't put that. Okay, hang on. I got to think a minute. No. (laughs) Pause. (laughs) And just so you know, Alyssa, I like often, what I do is I walk around with my computer and headphones, or I'm like doing the dishes and I have a little notepad. All right. It's time to go watch the March Madness. What happened to Kentucky? Does anyone know? 7171 with two seconds left. All right. Good night, everybody. I got to go watch this madness.